0: Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio Vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, Big Ten Conference Commissioner Kevin Warren and longtime college football analyst Kirk Herbstreet. Now, enter the
2: Sports Business Radio Vault.
0: Now, here's Brian's interview with Kevin Warren from November 2021.
2: I want to welcome Big Ten Conference Commissioner Kevin Warren the conversation uh kevin is he's been the commissioner of the big 10 since january of 2020 he worked 21 seasons in the nfl including 15 with the minnesota vikings where he was most recently the coo of the team you can follow him on twitter at kevin f warren kevin thanks for joining me on sports business radio how
1: are you Uh, good good to be here brian good to see you and uh and um, I'm, I'm happy that we'll get a uh, chance to spend some time together. Yeah, so many things
2: to cover with you, but let's start with this. You and I were both both uh, born and raised in in Phoenix, yep. Arizona. Uh, Marcos Deniza High School, right? Yep, that's where I
1: went to high school. What hospital were you born in?
2: I was born in St. Joseph's Hospital in downtown Phoenix. How about yes, you? Yes,
1: me too. I was, I was also I was born in St. Joseph's <laughs> Hospital. Yep. Wow. November, yeah, November 17th in 1963. So. Wow. What a small world, huh? <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to
2: talk to you about growing up in Phoenix, your mom and dad were both trailblazers in their mm-hmm. own rights. And mm-hmm. you used to attend the Fiesta Bowl with your dad every year. Your dad was one of the first black city council people. What did you learn from your parents that helped prepare you for your role today as conference commissioner of the Big Ten?
1: I think, you know, my parents uh, was, you know, one, just an incredible blessing to be able to grow up in their house. I mean, they were very uh, uh, humble people. Uh, They were very educated um, people. Um, They were very honorable um, people. and, 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 And they were they were when I say simple, I say that as a compliment. Um, so it, it to be able to um have, you know, my parents, the impact that they've had on my life. You know, I was blessed because I'm the youngest of seven kids, but they're my oldest brother is 20 years older than me, and my next sibling to me is about an eight year difference. So I really got a chance to spend a lot of quality time, you know, with them. But um, you know, they were they were straight shooters. They were very demanding, uh, very focused, very driven. You know, both of them had their own kind of story of of struggles uh, growing up, and uh, and and we lived in a very complex, complicated time, especially from a, a racial uh, standpoint in, in Arizona. But they never complained. Uh, they were very hardworking, and um, and you know, I never, I never, my, my my father, my entire life, I never remember him missing a day of uh, of work, and and my mom uh, went back and actually got her a college degree and her master's after she had me. She was, I think, 40 or 41 when she had me. Um, but then when she started working, she didn't uh, miss. So they were hardworking people. They were responsible. They were no nonsense. They were very disciplined. And I'm just grateful to, to many of the lessons that, uh, that they taught me. True or false, I
2: read a story that you were down to business in high school. Did you take one of your dad's briefcases to school in high school? You were already taking a briefcase in high school.
1: Yeah, that was that was uh, that that was true, uh, and and you know <laughs> I still see running to people every once in a while from high school now, and they still tease me about it. Um, but you know it was so much easier to to get around from a you know from a briefcase, have a briefcase standpoint. You know backpacks weren't really big deal. It either came down, um, you know, were you going to carry just almost like a duffel bag, and for me to be able to lay my you know papers out and. You know, strap them in and have pens and pen- pencils in there, and had, it, had, it was it was sleek. I mean, people tease me about it, but I say that I was a Renaissance person before my time, and <laughs> I was a forerunner. And uh, but yeah, um, I, I actually did carry a briefcase starting probably by my freshman year in high school. I like it. I think it's very efficient. <laughs> I think I think a lot of the issues that we have with our young people in high school, if they were required to carry a briefcase, they would they would probably. You know be a little bit more calmer and and um but it, it worked out well i was really i was really proud you know proud of it and, and like i said it was really it, it, it was organized and got a lot of grief in in high school but but i think now people understood what i was trying to accomplish
2: you have a legal background like i said you worked 21 seasons in mm-hmm. the nfl 15 with the minnesota vikings coo of the team how did working in the NFL and in business operations prepare you for your job now as commissioner of the Big Ten?
1: I mean, I think the biggest thing is I was, I was, you know, Brian. I've just had so many angels that have been, you know, with me throughout my life, starting with my parents, as you talked about, and my, you know, grandparents, and some of the struggles that they, you know, went through, um, and and you know, even even from a from a legal standpoint, um, you know, having a legal degree. Um, has has really helped me out a lot, but I've had had a list of angels, but one of them is the Will family, you know, who owns the Vikings. And and they really were a blessing to me uh, because they provided me with the platform and the opportunity uh, to really run and operate a very complex business, Um, you know, that all the way, yeah, was the football team a part of it? Yeah, it was a major part of it. Then when we got involved with the stadium and the practice facility and all the real estate development and all of those different things it, it, are, it, you know, one of the, the things that helped me the most now is that operating the Vikings and all of the ancillary businesses that come along with it, it helped me to kind of deal in, in this complex environment. I think the biggest challenge in college athletics, especially at the conference level, um, you think about you have 14 schools, uh, that then they span from Nebraska to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So you have all kind of governmental officials in each one of those states. You have 6.4 million alumni, living alumni, that are around the world, and they all kind of have different views of, of their institutions and what should or be, should or should not be done. And then you have your chancellors and presidents, which is the board that I report to. But then you have your athletic directors, you have your faculty athletic representatives, you have your senior women administrators, you have your coaches, your student athletes. You know all of those constituents. You know your bowl partners, your network partners. Um, and so when you bring that to bear. Uh, I think the complexities of what we had in the NFL with the Vikings helped kind of build a platform for me to when I come in. There is no normal day. There's no linear day. It's not like I can come in and say, okay, I've got this project to work on and I'm going to close my door and and really get after it. It doesn't work that way. And and, and recognizing just like last year is that your decisions that you make, they impact all of those different constituents uh, in different manners and fashions at different times for different reasons on different days. And so you try to make those a decision that you think will land properly uh, in the right manner to make sure that we can continually move the conference forward.
2: Interesting timing, right? So January 2020, you take over. Who in the world knows a global pandemic is (laughs) going to hit? You lived in Minneapolis. The George Floyd murder Mm -hmm. takes place. The world just changes drastically, and you couldn't see it coming. None of us could. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you had goals when you came in on day one, but those probably quickly shifted when those two events happened.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things and you're right. I mean, I, I, um, you know, was fortunate to have 21 years, you know, the most recent 15 years uh, at the Vikings coming in here started in September uh, of 2019 with Jim Delaney, who I just talked with a little bit earlier to get a couple month months transition with him. And I remember vividly, and I actually, have gone back and looked at this interview, and I looked so young and rested, and and <laughs> and, and light and happy. Was at the Orange Bowl. I mean, at the Rose Bowl uh, after the game, uh, when Jim passed the baton to me, it was an absolutely spectacular night in Pasadena on January first of of uh, twenty twenty. The weather was beautiful, and uh, and I had an early early flight back to Chicago the next morning, January second, to officially start my duties. Had my to do list and all my strategic plans and everything in place. And never did I know, like you said, a little over 70 days that the world would would, would uh, come to a screeching halt. I actually looked at it the other day. I spent uh, a little over two months in the office, pretty much January and February. Uh, I did get a chance to go see 104 out of our 350 teams compete during that period of time. And wow. then mid-March, uh, it stopped. And so I only had, I had about 70 days to even start building our staff. And then we were gone you know, we were away from the office, although I, you know, I was able to uh, come in because uh, other than my executive assistant, you know, we were closed. Um, is Then you go to operating this complex business with, like I said, from Nebraska to New Jersey, all of these, you know, different sports in an environment that you've only been on the job in, in 70 days, haven't even been able to be, get on campus. I had gone to, I think, two campuses by that mm-hmm. time. And now you're, you're running these businesses, uh, over, over zoom. And, um, um, and so it made it for a complex in a global pandemic. I mean, I think 5 million people have have died from this. So we had to be sensitive to that and work through all of those different issues. So we just opened back up in August. And, but you know, when I look back over it, it was, was it challenging? Absolutely. It was challenging, uh, at the level that, that, um, uh, is, is is was there were some days that you really wondered how we were going to get to the next day. But even when I say that, it was also an opportunity for us to come together. So as far as the strategic plan, I had to make sure that we were kind of always running dual tracks, staying on course as far as some of the things that we had laid out that we wanted to do from mental health and wellness to social justice, to voter registration, uh, to a lot of the issues which we were able to accomplish the equality coordination. So stay on that course. But then also we then had to, you know, operate from a COVID-19 standpoint and make sure that we were doing everything that we possibly could to keep our student athletes, you know, healthy and safe. Um, and and so as I look back over and look back over my notes and and all the different things that we, you know, went through to to get in our sports seasons last year. That's why every time I can go to a campus like last weekend in Nebraska and watch a uh, college football game and, and then go to New Jersey on Sunday and see a field hockey championship game in the Big Ten and soccer and fans in the stadiums and student athletes having fun. I'm just reminded of what they all went through last year, what we all went through last year. So it's good to be able to be back, even though we're still navigating our way uh, through this global pandemic.
2: You mentioned the mental health factor. Uh, the Big Ten started the Mental Health and Wellness Cabinet Tell us a little bit about that, because I think that's pretty innovative. And you know, as the dad to a high school student, I've seen the impact that mental health has had on our students, whether it's at the high school level or the college level. And it's been pretty drastic.
1: Yeah. I mean, where, where really it really came from is, you know, I, I, I was in a severe car accident um, when I was about uh, 10 and a half years old in the summer of 74, was fortunate to live. And although you and I were both born in St. Joseph's Hospital, I spent uh, my recovery um, um, in downtown in Phoenix in Good Samaritan Hospital. And, and and as I look back over that, out of all the pain and the turmoil and surgery and being in a body cast and traction, all those different things, not one time during that pretty much year journey of in the hospital and at home did I ever meet with anyone about my mental health. Mm-hmm. So I never met with a psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor. Uh, anything. And so I realized as I got older and in college, you know, there were some issues that I, that I really had to kind of work through, you know, almost dying at a, at a young age. And then, like I said, the recovery and the rehab, the physical injuries, I still feel them, you know, today. Um, And, and so I had to work through them. And so, and then just watching my, my own personal kids, Perry and Powers, you know, they were both athletes in college and, and in high school and just watching their struggles and listening to their teammates. And what really, really opened my eyes is that it was Easter uh, weekend uh, before I even had interviewed for the job here. So it wasn't even on my radar. We took our, our son, uh, who at the time was uh, a freshman at Mississippi State, where we took him, his, uh, Powers and a couple of his friends who were also student athletes in college. And there was one, one gentleman who was, uh, who was uh, uh, had playing a key role in his, in his team's, um, success as a freshman. And I was just talking to them that we went to church and we had brunch and what's college been like. He, and they said it was good. It was a challenge. Um, uh, but they were, you know, he was playing as a true freshman, but he said the biggest thing is, you know, he was struggling with some issues with a girlfriend and academic, uh, academically and then being away from home and, um, um, and concern, you know, maybe had a bad game injured a little bit and, and went to, to get some help to talk to someone. And he said, Hey, great. You know, we'll be able to get you in and kind of looked online and said, you know, that it was going to be like weeks uh, before they could sit down and talk with him. And he said how, how lonely he felt because he had a roommate who told him, Hey man, don't worry about the mental health stuff. They're not going to be able to do anything. And then when he had to go back to his dorm room and say, it's going to be weeks before he gets in and how lonely that was, that was kind of the light in my head. To say when I got in a position, even this is even before I interviewed for the job, especially at the Big Ten, that we needed to create an environment for our student athletes to, to make it safe, just as just as if our student athlete were injured, uh, torn ACL or hurt their knee, that they would feel as comfortable and we would encourage them as much for them to go and get help for for issues that they were struggling with from a mental health and wellness. And such is the reason why we formed the mental health and wellness cabinet. And we provide the call map to all of our student athletes and coaches, everyone in the Big Ten Conference. But we've made it, I believe, very uh, a comfortable environment where they can they can discuss their mental health and wellness.
2: Well, that's great, and it's so important. What are some of the specific resources that you offer to the student athletes as part of this wellness cabinet?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things is the call map that they they receive that, uh, and I've received so many notes and. Uh, just kind of thank you from from student athletes who have who've been able to to uh, to use it, whether it's from a sleep aid standpoint, from a meditation, from a relaxation standpoint. That's critically important. The other thing is, like I said, we've made it very comfortable for them to be able to talk about these issues on campus. And then there's even been a growth on our campuses from this from this mental health and wellness campus to make sure that we get more individuals in those areas to provide the resources uh, to our student athletes. Um, because they do need help. And so to be able to get individuals who work in the, in, in the mental health and uh, wellness area on our campus to be able to talk about it is critically important. And you'll see some of the things that we're going to start even rolling out this year um, to address some of those issues on our campuses with our student athletes and to the greater public at large to, to make people feel comfortable uh, that, we're, that we're talking about mental health and wellness.
2: The Big Ten also has the Equality Coalition. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that, because I like what you're doing there.
1: Yeah, same time deal. I happen to be, as you said, lived in Minnesota for 15 years, was actually in Minnesota when George Floyd was murdered, mm-hmm. um, but was, was there uh, in town and just really saw the impact of what it had in, in, in the community. It moved me so much because uh, that's not far away from where we go to church. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote a letter, published a letter, and and, and uh, I think the Library of Congress actually picked it up and, and have, have it in the, from an archive, put it in the archives. But, you know, that really started the reason of why we morphed into uh, the Equality Coalition. We had to do something. Mm-hmm. And with the student-athletes that we have now, they're bright, they're hardworking, they're smart, they're tough, they're passionate, and they really do want to change the world. I thought by having a, a platform... Um, to bring our educators, our, our student athletes, our coaches, our players, our administrators together to move the dial would be really important. And so they've been able to work on issues involving social justice, even for them to have a platform to be able to communicate it. We did something recently on Big Ten Network with the Anti-Defamation League, just on kind of hate on college you know, campuses to be able to talk about you know, those issues. Um, you know, it's critically important to just, again, just like mental health, to provide them with a safe space. Regardless of their background, their color, uh, to be able to address these issues, we were very active from a voter registration. It was uh, politically agnostic, uh, um, but we just wanted to make sure that we educated people from a social justice, from an equality coalition standpoint. And again, we have some incredible things planned uh, right after the first of the year uh, that 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 we're going to activate with our student athletes uh, to continually just to amplify all of these issues of. Uh, and, and focus on the importance of, of, of equity and diversity and inclusion.
2: Yeah, great work. Um, I want to dive into some college sports topics with you. So NIL, name, image, likeness. That's been so big since it launched July 1st. Uh, the NCAA is recognizing it more and more. What are your thoughts on how to navigate this space? Because it's new it's another new thing being introduced into the mix in the last year, and we've never seen anything like this before. So how have you guys prepared for this?
1: Yeah, and a couple of things, and even back to the mental health, you know, part of what you talked about, we hired our the first chief um, medical officer, Dr. Jim Borchers, who used to be at Ohio State, now with his company, USCO, the unite um, uh, U.S. Council for Athletes Health, um, to, to lead our medical efforts, um, you know, which is really important. And again, like you said, we're probably in the most interesting, complicated, challenging time in college athletics. But for the first time in 150 years, our student athletes are in a position to be able to to monetize their name, image, and likeness. So uh, I'm 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 pleased, you know, for them. They've they've earned that right to be able to do it. My big concern has always been uh, that we do all that we can to educate them the importance of handling money, uh, taxes, uh, dealing with their brand, but what, what, what better way can you learn about the importance of marketing and sales and branding and, you know, image and business and accounting and finance than if, if you're doing it yourself? And our schools have done a wonderful job of making sure our student-athletes are educated regarding those areas, um, you know, which is which is really important and really, really good from that standpoint. So as of now, it's gone fine. I think the market is uh, will dictate um, a lot of the NIL issues that we'll have to, so one of the things I still believe strongly that we do need federal legislation because if you, if you just look at what's going on in different states, it is complicated, uh, made it more complicated than it should be, when the focus should be on the, the student athlete and making sure that they can monetize their and capitalize on their ma- name image and likeness that they're educated properly. So I hope uh, we can uh, create some federal legislation for us to be able to address those issues. From where you
2: sit, do you have any idea? when that may take place. Cause I agree with you. I think yeah. it should be same rules across the board instead of, mm-hmm. you know, different States having their own rules.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, I'm, I'm, people are still working through it, but I'm just, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully it's, 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 sooner than too too later. Um, but at least the conversation is still going on. And I think, you know, there are people that recognize the importance of, of some type of stability and consistency in that area, especially in the NIL space.
2: Yeah. The alliance that the Big Ten formed with the Pac-12 and the ACC, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was smart. I like how you're coming together, pooling your resources, mm-hmm. helping a lot of the student-athletes in those three conferences. How's that going so far?
1: It's going, it's going fine. I mean, one of the things we continually, we talked about it when we, when we launched the alliance. We talk about it, you know, here on a regular basis. It's, it's so much bigger. Um, than then a scheduling alliance and coming together and schedule. Is that an important part of it? Absolutely. And you, you'll see that come to light. But some, so many of our you know, schedules are booked for you know, years in the future, but we'll work through those issues. But what it you know, we felt it was important for it to help stabilize college athletics. We were in a, a, a time of, 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 tom- of uh, just complexity and uh, a transition um, in college athletics, especially when it came down to conference realignment. And so we just thought that it would help kind of stabilize of where we are and, and what college athletics needs to really you know stand for. And then now to be able to work with a couple other conferences and have an impact, positive impact, well beyond scheduling, but on mental health and wellness, on social justice issues, on on you know academic issues. To go from you know fourteen uh, you know uh, wonderful institutions to forty one institutions is really you know, important. So I just think it's a matter of making sure, yes, that we can schedule competitive games, you know, with us. I mean we're all separate conferences. We all, you know, compete on the field. But then that we can come together and have a positive impact on the lives of our student athletes. And that's really what it's about is just to make sure we keep our student athletes at the center of of their of, of our decision making process and anything that we can do in a collaborative manner to address very complex issues now in college athletics, such as mental health and wellness and social justice, just to bring awareness and, and to provide them with another, another opportunity to, to learn academically, then it, it'll, be, it'll be well worth uh, the energy.
2: I think when people look at major college athletics right now, they go, oh my gosh, it's a game of musical chairs. Mm-hmm. Teams are leaving yep. conferences, other teams are coming in to replace the teams that left. Do you feel like things are starting to stabilize or is this going to be going on for the foreseeable future?
1: You know, I I think I'm hopeful that it started to stabilize because uh, we need stability to be able to make progress. You know, it's tough to to move forward on issues when things are moving. I mean, you know, who's in what conference? I mean, we had a period there, even the last couple of weeks. It literally, I mean, you probably thought the same thing I did that every day you picked up uh, something to read that there was some movement from another conference, um, you know, to another school from one conference to another. So. I just think it's important that hopefully things begin to slow down, we can get some stability uh, you know, in the marketplaces, the conferences can slow down, and uh, and then that way we can start focusing on what's the right thing to do for our student-athletes for the right reasons and uh, and be able to start making on some progress, because there is a lot. I don't think there's you know ever been this much going on in college athletics at one time. I would say if we had one or at most two of these issues to deal with, it would still be a lot. Right. Uh, but to have, you know, eight to 10 of these very highly complex, uh, complicated, you know, issues that have long lasting in- impact, um, it's important that we get some stability in the marketplace.
2: Another topic I wanted to discuss with you, I read something the other day, five hundred and thirty three million dollars is devoted right now to paying ex-football and basketball coaches dead money. They're not there mm-hmm. anymore. They have mm-hmm. left. People talk about amateur athletics and it is amateur athletics. But when you see that kind of money thrown around and being paid out to coaches who are no longer at those schools, what do we do about this? I mean, I've had Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA on this show. I've had other conference commissioners on. It seems like this has been an issue for, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, Do we ever see a solution where we can, you know, maybe solve that
1: problem? I mean, I hope so. I mean, and again, I mean, this, you know, uh, college athletics is so competitive and, you know, people want to win so badly. And, and, um, and you look at some of the schools that have been able to kind of flip their programs and go from maybe losing to win, winning and the panache that it brings and, um, the access and the visibility and all those different things. I mean, you know, sports may be a kind of small part of the student body population, but it's the, really the front porch of, of the majority of, of universities, especially, you know, in, in, in the A5. And so um, back from a stability standpoint, I just think the more that we can calm things down, get, get to um, a place where people aren't making knee-jerk decisions, that they're having a thoughtful long-term progress um, in their mind, the better off that we're going to be. And that's why I think that's been the, probably the biggest challenge for me you know, these last two years, it's not the issues. I mean, the issues, they were complicated. We can work through them, but it's just the, you know, the instability uh, of things that are happening on a daily basis. And I think it's something that, that, uh, you know, from a college athletic standpoint, it it has uh, caused us all to make sure that we're uh, as organized and as thoughtful and detailed and structured as we possibly can be, because when's the next one? I mean, I don't think it's, you know, it's going to be years. It could happen you know, something else could come up. And so I know I've tried to take that approach here at the Big Ten to make sure uh, at every level that we're structured properly, we're operating properly, and, uh, and we're taking more looks as far as uh, an analysis or, you know, looking into to certain things probably more than it had been done before, just, just from an operational standpoint, because, you know, we need to make sure that we stay as nimble and as flexible as we possibly can.
2: Yeah, I mean, I really have to give you a lot of credit. I think since you've come in, and again, some of these things that have happened in the last year kind of uh, accelerated this, but mm-hmm. you've really modernized the conference. And, mm-hmm. and I see you doing a number of things, whether it's the, the Mental Health and Wellness Cabinet or the Equality Coalition or things you're doing with the Big Ten Network. I think you are doing a number of things to modernize the conference. Mm-hmm. And I give you a lot of credit for that.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we have a you know great you know, staff here and always, my dad would always say, you know, form follows function. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, once we figure out what the, you know, function of the conference is, then we have to create the form and the forum to be able to make sure we serve the needs of our, of our colleges and universities in a Big Ten conference. And, and also that we're doing the, the right things for the right reasons at the right time for college athletics in general. I mean, you look what's going on in this Constitution Convention with the NSA. There's just there, just, there are a lot of issues that are going on. And, uh, and we just need to make sure that, that we're doing all that we possibly can. The other thing that's been interesting is there's been no roadmap. I mean, you know, it's right. not like you can call someone to say, hey, when you went through this uh, in your conference uh, five years ago or three years ago, 10 years ago, this, not. We, we have literally multiple cases of first impression that we're dealing with that are all very important. So I think that's been the, 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 the issue that's caused probably the most stress uh, and anxiety is the fact that these are all kind of situations of first impression that we're dealing with, but but they are all very important.
2: One of the big opportunities, I think, in sports in general right now is the growth of women's sports. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. again, the Big Ten has always been a leader in women's sports. Um, From where you sit, where are those opportunities? I mean, I'm seeing increased TV ratings for the NWSL and WNBA you know, obviously things like the Olympic sports, but it looks like there's real growth opportunities here and companies are finally starting to invest more in
1: yep. women's sports. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big pro, you know proponent and support of that. I think even our Big Ten network, there have been some um, uh, announcements that I think 52% of all their linear programming will be uh, in, in, in women's sports, which is great. I mean, we're down to the, probably within the next week we'll be, uh, hiring our first ever vice president of women's basketball, you know, for our conference. I announced that at media day, we have a Lisa Byington award, you know, Lisa, who's, who is the outstanding broadcaster who was at the big 10 network. And now she's the first woman broadcaster in the NBA at, at, at the Milwaukee bucks. And we want to do something in honor of her. I just think that we have a fiduciary responsibility in college athletics, especially at the big 10 conference to create environments uh, that allow for young talent people, especially young, talented women, uh, to have a chance to break into sports, to, to earn their right to lead uh, and be leaders. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful at the Big Ten Conference. We're, we're uh, doing all that we possibly can to make sure that we are are fair and equitable, and uh, but that we provide opportunities for women to to take big roles. I mean, we hired a uh, deputy commissioner and our chief sports officer, Dinah Sable, who was at Ohio State for many years to come in and and um, and so I just I'm I'm, I'm energized every time that I, I look at all the opportunities from a diversity, equity, inclusion standpoint that exist. But we're going to do our part here in the Big Ten uh, to make sure that we continually support, empower uh, and promote uh, women to key positions.
2: Speaking of the Big Ten Network, the media space is quickly mm-hmm. evolving as well. We're seeing more streaming. Uh, we're seeing more audio out there how are you guys being nimble and and innovating around the growth in, in the media space?
1: Yeah, we're, I mean, fortunately we have, you know, great, uh, you know, partner and, uh, partners really in Fox and, and, um, uh, for, for our sports and big 10 network and, you know, CBS for, for basketball and ESPN for, you know, basketball and football. We just have great partners. And what we're trying to do is to make sure we stay nimble. I mean, you know, over the next couple of years, I think you'll see continued growth, um, you know, in the linear market and in the OTT market, and and uh, but but in this environment, like you said, in, from a media standpoint, it is ever changes. It literally changes every week, and so uh, we we have some talented people internally. We have talented relationships, and and this is something. I mean, I, I spend every single day. I spend time on something related to uh, our media platforms um, in some form or fashion, whether it's currently or. Uh, looking, looking down the road in the future. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. It will be just continually be a challenge. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited of, of, the, of the impact that we can have in college athletics based upon you know, our, our media platform.
2: How is the Big Ten prioritizing tech-powered experiences for game day? Again, when you go to a venue now, whether it's a football stadium, a basketball arena, People want to post on social media. They want to capture those experiences, share those experiences. How are you guys uh, working around
1: that? Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that I think being the NFL helped you know help me. I mean mm-hmm. we had our we did a lot in the media space at the, at our Vikings. We had the and Vikings Entertainment Network that we started and launched, and and then you know the NFL, the impact that it's you know had and and in, uh, um, in in the whole media area. So I was able to watch kind of firsthand uh, the importance of it and the importance of staying nimble. And what we tried to do and will continually try to do here is to basically meet all of our customers where they're, you know, where, where they are at and situated. So if they're home on their couch, what can we do to, to amplify uh, that relationship? If they're driving in a car, what can we do to amplify that relationship? If they live uh, in London, uh, what can we do to amplify that relationship? And uh, as I said, the key of it is, is we've been blessed with, you know, incredible, incredible partner and 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 Fox and and um, and and Big Ten Network and uh, have our own kind of platforms to be able to do it has is, is, has been you know powerful. And then, like I said, working with CBS and and ESPN is is really important. But again, over these next couple of years, I think you're going to see uh, the the organizations that are that are creative, that are forward thinking, that can deliver content in a very kind of, uh, 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 as I call it easy manner are the ones who are going to separate, uh, themselves, uh, from, you know, from the pack, but, but I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, media is an area that I have always been, uh, intrigued. I have an, and enjoyed working in that space. And I'm always on a daily basis looking for ways that we can just continually fortify, um, uh, our media platforms in a big 10 conference.
2: A couple minutes left. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people are pleased with the format of the NCAA basketball mm-hmm. tournament, men's and women. There's always a lot of talk about college football. Should it be four teams, eight teams, 16 teams? Big Ten's got some pretty good football teams right now. And mm-hmm. if you had eight or 16, I think you've got several teams getting in with four, not as much of an opportunity. If you. Could decide, you know, what that college football postseason landscape looks like. What do you think works best?
1: I think access. I mean, uh, you know, quite naturally, I'm personally for it. I know our conference is personally, you know, for expansion. The key question is, what's the right number? You know, mm-hmm. at the at when's the right time, uh, and what are the right right reasons? I mean, we have a, again back to your first question to me, balancing all these constituents. I mean we have our student-athletes to health and safety, both physical and mental, that we need to be focused on. Um, you know, we need to make sure we're focused. Uh, if We have playoff games in, in the North and, and, and uh, Midwest where we live, that uh, those those stadiums and fields are properly conditioned and winterized to keep our student-athletes healthy and safe. We have to remember our student-athletes on our campuses to get an education. You know, that has to be their priority. And, uh, and so we need to, to make sure from an academic standpoint that, they have time in their academic calendar to be able to take final exams and go to class and, and be there for their reason. We need to make sure, from a healthy health and safety standpoint, they have enough time, you know, for recovery. And you know, the, the fans are important. You know, fans enjoy it, and so um, I think it's the right thing to do. The key of it, uh, the key of it, comes down that you know we have five years remaining on our contract. If we do um, uh, make a decision to to do something earlier. Then the end of the contract, it, it has to make sense and, um, and, and it has to be done for the right reasons at the right time. So we've had some really productive meetings. We were just in Dallas recently. We're going back in a couple of weeks to continually work through these issues. We take these issues really seriously. And I know all of us want what's best for you know our student athletes and to make sure we balance all of those different interests and balance them in a manner that uh, that does the right thing for the right reasons at the right time.
2: How often are the Power Five conference commissioners getting together?
1: Uh, well, you know we've been together Dallas for the CFP meetings a lot lately, but we talk on a weekly basis. We have a, we, we talk on a weekly basis just to talk about issues because the same issues that we're facing here, the same issues that that uh, my colleagues are facing, and I think when we can share best practices and work through uh, those issues, we started that back in the COVID uh, period. It, it just it just helps you know helps our conferences and helps each other.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. Before I let you go, I know you're based in Chicago, right? Yep. Yep. Chicago is one of my favorite cities.
1: Uh, I'm a great city. Yep.
2: Um, it's a foodie town. Yep. I need like next time I come to Chicago,
1: I need a, a recommendation. What's a good restaurant that I should go to? Well, we, It kind of depends on what kind of food you want, but uh, there are some great, great restaurants here, but if you're staying downtown, uh, you can't go wrong with Joe's seafood. I, mean, I'm sure you've had that. and And, as a quiet point there, the key element is make sure you get the fried chicken there. It's a, they don't promote it a lot on the menu, and I know it's not healthy, so I limit myself to probably only <laughs> eating it four to six times a year, uh, but if you want to do something different, but there's so many great restaurants here uh, in Chicago, and you're right. it just it just from a history standpoint, maple and ashes, you know, phenomenal. I mean there's there's just so many. Uh, phenomenal, uh, great restaurants here and, and even some great breakfast places. I don't get a chance to do that uh, often. A couple weekends ago, I actually went to breakfast for the first time in probably nine months and, and really, you know, enjoyed it. So yeah, I love food. I, I, I that's why I work out like a wild person to make <laughs> sure that I can eat. And, and for most days I just drink. That's why I keep all these bottles of water, uh, water on my, uh, and just eat one meal at night. So I can really eat eat what I want. Um, Life is short. And I think we need to make sure we take the time to enjoy it. And hopefully when you come to Chicago, we'll share a meal together.
2: That would be wonderful. Yeah. There's no better person to take me around and and show me uh, the spots than than you. Commissioner Warren, thank you so much for joining us here at the Sports Business Radio Roadshow presented by Boingo. I think you're doing a great job and I really appreciate your time.
1: No, thank you. Thank you for everything you stand for. And as I said, congratulations on everything you do not only on this show, um, but, you know, with your sports PR summit, you're changing the lives of so many people, especially uh, people who are interested in the business. And we need really good people in here. So thank you. Thank you for being uh, uh, so professional, uh, hardworking, a man of your word. And I appreciate uh, working with you. And so I'm always here. Anytime you have me on, I love to come back on. So appreciate your work.
2: That's very kind of you to say thank you. And who knew we were both born at St. Joseph's Hospital in <laughs> Phoenix, right. Arizona. that beat that. That's right. <laughs> thank thank you, you so much. Well,
1: good, to, good to see you. Good, all good right, to see care. you too. All right. All right. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Hey,
2: everyone. Brian Berger here. Roan is the new official menswear partner of Sports Business Radio. I love their product. I've been a fan for a long time. Did you know David Stern was one of their first investors? Roan makes the absolute highest quality, best-fitting, and most comfortable performance-driven clothing for men. Their entire line places emphasis on an active, balanced, and purpose-driven lifestyle. I'm wearing my spar joggers. I've got them in uh, heather gray. I've got them in navy. I've got my moleskin commuter slim pant. I've got my regular black commuter pant. I've got my dress shirts. So when I'm out in in in-person meetings, I have the nicer Roan product to wear. But most of the time I'm working from home and I've got my rain long sleeve gray heather camo. I've got my rain long sleeve hoodies. I am wearing the shorts for workouts, the seven inch Mako shorts. So I'll tell you what, from top to bottom, whether it's casual or business wear, Roan has me covered. I know they're going to have you covered too. And Roan is offering Sports Business Radio podcast listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to Roan.com, R-H-O-N-E.com and enter code SBR15 at checkout. Like Sports Business Radio 15, SBR15 at checkout. Receive 15% off your purchase. That's Roan.com, R-H-O-N-E.com and enter promo code SBR15 at checkout. Now, here's Brian's
0: interview with Kirk Herbstreet from August 2021.
2: My guest is Kirk Herbstreet. He's ESPN's lead college football analyst, former Ohio State football star. Follow him on Twitter at Kirk Herbstreet. He's got a new memoir out. It's called Out of the Pocket, Football Fatherhood in College Game Day Saturdays. It's out now in bookstores everywhere and available at Amazon.com. Kirk, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you?
3: I'm doing great.
2: How are you doing? I'm doing great. I really enjoyed your book. Uh, I appreciated the candor. You and I are around the same age, so I could relate to a lot of the things that you referred to uh, in the book, whether it's Sandlot and Wonder Years or just uh, (laughs) growing up in that era. So I I found that uh, interesting. I'm a parent as well, so uh, the fatherhood part related to me. But you've had this long accomplished career. Why write the book now?
3: Well, I think you just touched on a few things. You, you, you just mentioned a couple different ways how you personally related to, uh, to some of the stories. And I, um, I was approached by Gene Wojciechowski, who co-authored the book with me and is a colleague on ESPN College Game Day. And he hit me right in the middle of quarantine and, and um, just a lot of unknowns for all of us going on at that time. And he, he kind of came up with the idea of what he envisioned the book to be and i've been approached many times in the past about writing a book but never about a memoir never about opening up and being vulnerable and kind of talking about the dysfunction i grew up with and um how i coped with that how i kind of compartmentalized it a lot to protect you know my feelings and um you know i hadn't really talked about it yeah i'm an introverted guy so i don't really open up on a regular basis and um just decided in the middle of quarantine, why not? You know, this may be a good time to reflect. And so, yeah, in this book, as you've read, there's there's plenty of football. There's there's plenty of, of broadcasting and storytelling. But um, a lot of it is about fatherhood, whether it's my own dad, who was a hero of mine until my parents divorced when I was eight. Uh, and he still was. It was just a different different relationship. He was out of my life more than in it. And I, and I never really, as you read, I didn't really resent him or, or had anger. I was more, I guess, I just had an emptiness towards that relationship, just wanted more of it. And so um decided to talk about that and then becoming a dad, you know, myself with four boys. And My introduction into that was my, my twins were born 12 weeks early at two pounds each and uh, were clinging to life there for about eight weeks in the NICU and, and got out of that and they're now. 21 years old and 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 doing well but just that experience as a first-time parent and constantly second-guessing myself as a dad this is not an answer book you know this is not uh, here's how you raise kids it's fur- furthest thing from that it's more of hey i'm just trying to do the best i can and these are some of my own experiences and this is what uh, you know I'm, I'm trying to do better at and and so i don't know i just thought it would be a good time as i said to reflect and, and hear people like you say oh man i can." I can relate to that. And that, that more than anything, was what I was hoping to accomplish.
2: Yeah. I mean, I find it hugely relatable. Again, as a dad, like you said, there's no roadmap. No one gives us an operating operating manual. And we have kids about here's all the things you need to know when you're a dad. So you just kind of feel your way through it. And, and, you know, I got to be honest with you, Kirk, I, I love watching you. Uh, you know, on ESPN and college football. But I love getting to know you as a person a little bit through your book and as a father. And, you know, I think your fans and people who watch you are going to have a different bond with you going forward because they've read this book and they know your backstory a little
3: bit. Man, that that would be huge. Um, And and I would love that because um, I I think when people see folks on TV or they see them in the public eye, they they kind of build up um, a, a certain thought of who that person is or who they think that person is. And I say, I think in the book, I, you know, just based on feedback I've got from people, I think people look at me and the job that I have. And, you know, I look like a guy who was born on third base, you know, right. kind of thing and nothing against people who are born on third base, but that was the furthest thing <laughs> that I was. And I, and I think, um, you know, if I, if I, uh, have a chance to, to, tell the real story of me. I, and, and, people will look at that and say, wow, I didn't really think that, you know, I mean, I, I think that's great. I, 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 I uh, I'd rather have them know the real me than, than not. So, uh, if that comes out of this, that'd be great. And I, I tell you, even my, there, there's a book and then there's an audio book, which I read myself. It, it took close to 25 hours to do and It, it wow. was really more, more of a performance to do it because you're, you're reading, the book and not just kind of reading the way you normally obviously reading your head. And, and I was reading out loud, and, and you know, if I was talking about Dabo Sweeney or Lee Corso or whoever, I would, I would, you know, try to do voices, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, kind of imitating their voices. So I've had family members say, and good friends of mine say, Man, I've read the book, but I, I did the audiobook, and to hear you read your story. Um, man, it, it's, it's, it's just so unique to, to have. And I thought, you know, because I debated, do I have an actor or somebody that does this for a living read the book? Or do I take on <clears throat> that challenge of doing, like I said, about 25 hours of it? And it was really the hardest thing I did for the book was re- doing the audio book. And um, the back end of it, I'm just so thrilled that I, I did that because of uh, the feedback that I've, I've gotten from so many people.
2: Walk me through that process. Cause I've heard more and more authors doing, you know, the audio portion of the book themselves. Is that like four or five sessions over the 25 hours? Break that down.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It was about five sessions. Um, uh, and then I did a, a few, uh, a, another day of kind of edits that, um, the gentleman who was helping me out, he, so I would, I would go to a studio <clears throat> and, and in today's day and age, of course, everything's on zoom. It seems like, and, there was a guy in Boulder, Colorado, who's really a, a really good guy. And he was, he was kind of coaching me through it cause I've never done anything like this. Obviously is my first book. And, and, um, he just kind of sat there on zoom with headphones on and I had to, headphones on and we would, I mean, go through the very beginning to, to the, the end to the acknowledgements. And if I, you know, messed up or I, you know, didn't didn't say a word right, or he would catch something, you know, he'd say, Hey, we need to go back, you know, uh, to that uh, two paragraphs back at, at this spot, and we got to start again. And and so, you know, I, we we just went through the whole book like that. And like I said, we tried did a, probably did about five hours a day, and um, just did the best that I could. And 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 I think the reason it was the, the guy said when we were done, hey, you know, I do this with a lot of people, and this was really, really, uh, really did a good job with it. And I said, well. I think it's I couldn't do this for a living but it was reading my story, it was easy to be in the right tone, whether it was you know a tough, sad tone or or jovial upbeat, happy tone, because you know, you're just kind of reacting to the words that, that you're reading. But uh it was it was a really cool experience. It was chat like I said, it was it was more of a performance than anything. I mean, you get done with five hours on a Monday Whew. and you're like
2: <laughs> you're spent. Oh, wow. Yeah, Man,
3: I need to go lay down for a little bit. So then, <laughs> and then we, then we knocked out the next four days. But yeah, it was a challenge. But uh, the back end, the, the finished product made it all worth it.
2: So between that gentleman that helped you out and Gene, you've got two people you're pretty comfortable with in this process. That's got to help.
3: Absolutely. I, I, I could not have done this without Gene and the comfort that I had with him. You know, I talk in the book about when I was at Ohio State, seeing a sports psychologist because i went in as a highly touted recruit and fell flat on my face for three years and and really really struggled with depression and sadness and becoming a cynic and and just just a cancer you know to the team and and um sort of dark place and i i was ready to quit ready to give up my dad who was still you know in my life offered some encouragement which helped but boy, I'll tell you, seeing this sports psychologist, but by the way, in 1990 and 1991, not a really cool thing uh, for your street cred to be going to see a sports psychologist. So right, I would, and, and pretty uncommon, I would, go, I
2: would imagine.
3: Yeah, very uncommon. And, and every time I would go see him, and I would see him weekly, I, I promise you, I would look over my shoulder to see if anybody was looking to see me go into, into his office. And my position coach heard about eventually heard about that. I was seeing him and he looked at me like I had three heads, like, what is your deal? What is your problem? Kind of thing. And, um, if I wouldn't have had him in my life to to really open up and, and talk to, I don't know if I would have ended up making it where I have. So he was a game changer and I really encourage people. What's neat about that for me was, you know, you could talk to somebody in your family or a close friend and talk to them about your problems, but even though they, don't realize it. They, they subconsciously have an agenda, or kind of hope you go a certain way with whatever you're struggling with. So even their advice sometimes is 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 slanted a certain a certain way. You go talk to a person that's just listening and, and has an objective view, and maybe is just looking out of, for how you might grow and what what's in your best interest. Um, it's very powerful, and so I uh, I really enjoyed that relationship. And Gene kind of reminded me a little bit about that because I put a lot of these these feelings away for many, many, many years and started to bring up some things when I was a kid. And if I didn't have that relationship and that trust with Gene, I I don't think I could have opened up and, and talked about a lot of that stuff. So yeah, he, he was a, a great partner throughout this process.
2: So you mentioned in your book, again, the relationship with your dad, the divorce of your parents, um, and now you've got four sons. And one of them just started at Ohio State. So you've got three generations of Herb Street who have played at Ohio State now. How did your relationship with your dad and your mom impact how you parent today?
3: In a, in a big way. I mean, my mom, you know, the book is about fathers and sons, but my mom, I mean, she's always been there for me um, and, and has been through a lot herself uh, throughout this, this journey that I've been on. Uh, And, and uh, I think more than anything, she's been a sounding board for me when I, when I've been parenting and not having a dad, I don't know your background or people that are listening, their background, but you know, being eight years old and your dad leaves the house. And again, my dad was a great man. It wasn't like he was an alcoholic or a, you know, an abusive guy or anything. It it wasn't anything like that at all. He was great. He just, his problem was he and my mom decided to, to separate and then he didn't like confrontation. So he avoided confrontation instead of addressing it. And so I was with my mom, my mom was confrontation. So he just kind of avoided it. Then he got remarried and he just kind of drifted in and out of my life. So I not having a dad and a good influence in your house for me, when I became a dad, I, I really questioned a lot of my, my parenting. And I, I was, I was a, just to put it in perspective, As busy as I am with football and work and college game day and the games I call, I mean, like you and everybody else, I'm busy. But man, I made my kids my priority, and I still do. Like I, I wasn't a dad where, you know, the mom has to remind the dad, hey, don't forget, uh, there's a game on Wednesday, or hey, uh, Jake has a test on Thursday in algebra. Like I knew everything. Like I was a hands-on, live it every day take the kids to school, talk to the kids every day, kind of dad. And so I, I thought I was doing a good job, but, you know, parenting's hard. I mean, it's the hardest job to me that you can have. It's the most important job and the toughest because you want to do such a good job. And so when I would when I would get into these gray areas of, you know, in the teenage years, especially, am I, am I doing the right thing? Or I I, did, I just didn't have an example. So I, I would even talk to my kids about it openly about you know man i'm trying to do the best i can am i doing okay for you and as your dad and so i I just felt like i didn't want to be their best friend you know at, at, at this age my kids now are 21 so it's a little bit different my twins my you mentioned zach who's at ohio state he just left home he's 18 and then i have a 15 year old and i don't i want to be fun and i want to be their dad but i also want to teach them things and and sometimes teaching teenage uh, boys things isn't always, you, you know, you're being their best friend. It's, it's doing things they don't always like. And when I would have to do things they didn't always agree with, that's when I would be like, am I doing, am I doing this right? You know, and so, yeah, I've, I think it's impacted me in a big way, both for the positive, because I had loving parents, even though the dysfunction was there, but also didn't have the ideal, you know, I didn't have Mr. and Mrs. Cunningham, uh, you know, Richie Cunningham. Type of life I just didn't have it, so I, I did. I, I learned from my friends' dads. I learned from I could, and I'm still trying to do uh, the best that I, that I can.
2: And today, growing up is so different than when we were growing up. You kind of touched on it in the book. You said you lived in a neighborhood that kind of reminded people of The Sandlot or The Wonder Years. You're out playing ball in the street and things like that. Now with social media. Obviously, we've had Man. this pandemic over the last year. I have a 16-and-a-half-year-old daughter. She was playing sports. Obviously, can't play sports. You don't see your coaches. You don't see your teachers. You don't see your friends. It's so different now for our kids than it was for us. So it's like a different landscape that we probably didn't anticipate when we became parents.
3: Man, that is a great point and and very fair. Um my, my mom and dad, you know, before they divorced, I I think about it. I was in the backyard. I mean, we had 15 kids in the backyard that ages, you know, if I were five or six, went all the way up to probably 10 or 11. And, you know, whether it was wiffle ball, four square, get the bit wheels out. I mean, it was going to the, to the Creek. We're catching snakes. We're catching crawdad, <laughs> we're I mean, it was just nonstop, yeah. you know? And like, You'd eat lunch at someone's house, you know. Just it'd be right around lunch, and one of the moms would yell, "Come on in!" And there'd be peanut butter sandwiches. You'd go in and eat peanut butter sandwiches and in a fruit, you know, a, a juice box or something. And you'd go back out and and play until it was dark. I mean, that, that was your summer. Um, and now, like you said, everything's a play date. Everything's organized. Um, it, it, your your kids, if they if they participate in activities, whether it's sports or the arts or whatever it is. They have a a coach that helps them. And there's very little, unless you're in a rural community, it's hard to find those kind of communities where just, we don't have to schedule a play date. It's just your outside plan. Right. And yeah. And yeah, so I think our generation of parents, my biggest concern with our generation of parents is I I often, I, I look at that and I heard somebody give a speech about this. We're kind of the snowplow generation of parents, meaning we don't want anything bad to happen to our kids. And so we snope, we, we clear out all the problems in front of them and they Mm. kind of walk in behind us. If it's a bad teacher, we'll take them out of that class, move them over to this teacher. If it's a bad coach, take them off that team, move them over to another team. You know, if it's any kind of situation where our kids are not going to have success and might have to deal with failure, we're going to take them out of that and and we're going to get them to another situation. And, and I, I didn't, I don't know about you, but, you know, I didn't experience that. I mean, we, kids dealt with failure and, and we, we, you know, dealt with it and, and learned and grew and, and hopefully for the better. Um, and, and I really worry sometimes for this next generation of kids because they're, they're not always getting a chance to fail and they're, they're not always getting a chance to have to learn and adapt and, and overcome. And those are such valuable lessons that we all need in life. And, um, and so, and I, by the way, I, I had that same feeling of keeping up with the Joneses mentality of, of feeling other parents doing that. So this is what you must, this is what I'm supposed to do. Maybe, maybe, uh, I I'm doing it wrong because I'm watching everybody else, you know, and everybody else, everything's wonderful. Everything's great, you know? And, and, uh, I think it's, you're right. It's man, what a different time, uh, in our country right now. And then you throw in the, the global pandemic, like you said, that, that's that whole different level. You throw in social media and how kids communicate today. My kids, a lot of times, they play video games with headsets on. They're playing Fortnite or they're playing Madden or MLB The Show. And I used to sit in the same room with my buddies and hang out. And, you know, they're, they're socializing. They're hanging out, but with headphones on, you know, playing games and, and uh, on these social media apps. It's just very Very different. Hard for, I think, our group to relate to sometimes.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I want to go back to something you just said because it's also one of the themes of your book, resilience. So for all the reasons you just laid out, the snowplow parents that exist today, I worry that our kids aren't learning resilience and learning how to bounce bounce back from failure. And like you mentioned in your book and earlier in this conversation, first three years at Ohio State didn't go as planned for you. And you had to be resilient in order to stay on the team and, you know, have success in the end. Resilience now, whether it's, hey, I'm going for that job and I know I have to start at the bottom, like you did making what, $12,000 a year in your first broadcasting job. Or, you know, some people come in today and they're like, if I can't be, you know, mid level or or running the show, then, you know, I'm not going to do it. And you're like, no, there's a process to this.
3: Absolutely it's a big part of the book and I, I heard a pastor one time saying you're either going into a storm some kind of storm in life you're in a storm currently or you're coming out of a storm and that's life right for all of us whether it's parenting parenting or it's being an employee and trying to do the best job you can whether it's owning a business no matter what you're doing in life think about your life over the last seven days. And tell me that you haven't either just come through a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, or you're headed into one. I mean it's it's and so if that's reality, if that's what all of our lives are like as adults, we're really doing our kids an injustice by not allowing them to learn to deal with those storms. We're taking those storms out of their lives instead of making them try to to deal with them. And and I'm not saying we shouldn't be there to hold their hand and and you know, let them understand, Hey, I'm right here. I, I you know, I'm going to try to help guide you here a little bit, give you some suggestions. I, I, I got your back. I love you. and I support you, but not, Oh boy, storm. Oh, no, no. Come over here. We'll get you out of that. We'll get you over here where there's blue skies. Don't worry about it, man. You're setting them up for failure down the road in my mind. I'm no different. Like I said, I, I, I've, I've felt those same kind of pressures and to see my kids struggle. Oh my gosh. It's hard and to just walk, just to watch. Oh, how hard is that? And I, I get wanting to take them out of it, but, um, I just really feel, I mean, my kids have struggled a lot, you know, having uh, twins that were 12 weeks early, they're two pounds and they're probably in the five to 10 percentile height, and weight range, most of their lives. And kids will go through teenage years and, and go through puberty when they're 12 and 13. And my kids probably didn't experience puberty. They're 15, and then to try to compete with with kids like that—oh, it was was a nightmare to to watch them try to deal with that. God bless them; they they just kept chopping wood and and kept battling, and and I'm very 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 proud of them for that. I never wanted to make them ever feel like they had a handicap in some way or that they were not quote unquote normal. So I just tried to always treat them that way. But yeah, watching them struggle was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Whether it was academics or it's athletics or social, you know, in, in today's day and age, these kids, these poor kids with these apps, a group of five or six or eight kids get invited to go to someone's house and your kid didn't get invited. Yeah. You know, I've, I've seen parents fix that. You know, they'll, they'll call the parents that where all the kids are, Hey, Hey, uh, my, my kid loved to come over. Is it okay if he comes over? It's like, wow, what, what incredible pressure that these kids face and the parents, uh, face to try to fix that. So yeah resiliency, getting knocked down, getting back up, learning, adjusting, fine tuning. Gosh, that's so much a part of life. And, and I, uh, I'm very grateful. It was not fun to go through what I went through, but man, on the back end, um, and I'm still going through stuff, you know, and still trying to fine tune. And I probably will do that till the day I die, but it's so rewarding when you, when you get back up and, and you learn from some failures and, and learn from hard times. It's, it's very important to be able to learn how to do that because, like I said, you're going to do that a lot in life when you get older.
2: I believe life is full of sliding doors, moments you take advantage of some, you don't of others. In your book, you mentioned the story of how you met your now wife, and you were an introverted student, and you almost didn't go to the bar that night. You usually had a wingman with you, as you said, and, and you went by yourself <laughs> And think about it, Kirk, like what if you didn't go that night? Maybe you still meet her, but you went, you were brave, you went by yourself, you struck up a a conversation with her and, and the rest is history. So that to me was a charming story in the book too.
3: Man, I, yeah, being a shy guy and I had a girlfriend throughout high school and college for about eight years. And so I didn't really ever, I was never a guy that was comfortable ever, ever, ever going up to a girl and, and saying, hey, how are you? I don't even know what you say. Hey, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever you say, I don't know. And so I I would always just kind of just hope that, uh, you know, my, the girlfriend that I had throughout eight years, we would eventually get married. But we ended up breaking up going into my my senior year. I'm redshirted, so I was in school my fifth year. She graduated, for, you know, from uh, Ohio State in, her, in the fourth year moved to Chicago, and I just broke up and thought, I just don't want to deal with girlfriend or drama. My senior year, I've worked so hard to get to this point. I'm a captain of the team. I'm locked in, and let's roll. And second game of the season that year, we were playing a game that we were a heavy underdog on the road at uh, Syracuse. And during a TV timeout, we were playing pretty well and actually competing and we would go on to, to win the game, but during this TV timeout, I came over to the sideline and I was looking, listening to the quarterback, and I'm listening to the offensive coordinator. He's got his head, head head headphones on, and head coach John Cooper was there. We're all talking about what you know play in this next drive that's coming up. And as in the middle of them talking to me, I just happened to catch the be right behind my offensive coordinator's head. I I saw a cheerleader, and it's not like I'm always looking in the background for cheerleaders. I just happened to see this cheerleader who was in the background of the coach, and she looked very pretty. And it was just like a mental note. And uh, we went on, played the game, finished the game. And the third-string quarterback, uh, Brian Niemeyer, he was dating a cheerleader who would eventually become his wife. But at that time, they were dating. And I said, hey, man, can you ask um, your girlfriend who that that uh, cheerleader was that, that I saw? And so now that was think about this September, she didn't call me. This is how long because I didn't. I'm not going to make a move. I didn't do anything. <laughs> she she called me in late March during March Madness. The reason I remember I was watching Kentucky play Michigan in the Final Four, and she called me. I could hear background noise. This is no cell phones. It's called my apartment, and I could just hear tons of noise. And first time I answered, I said hello, hello, and and the, the phone hung up and then like five minutes later called again. And she said, is this Kirk? And I said, yeah. And she said, Hey, it's Allison. Me and Brian and Tanya are over at, you know, wherever they were. Do you mind coming over and joining us? And I was like, "Uh," <laughs> I'm looking around my apartment. Where's my roommates? Yeah. There's no one there. And so I, I said, yeah, sure. And then I just sat there for 10 minutes. Like, what am I going to do? I, I've never been anywhere in my life by myself. Um, and so I just sucked it up, like you said, and drove there and walked into a bar first time and only time in my life by myself just to go meet her and, uh, and did it. And like you said, the, the rest is history.
2: Might be the best decision you ever made
3: <laughs> No
2: doubt. before I let you no, go. Um, cause I know we only have a few minutes left. I've got to ask you about college football and where it's at. You know, we've seen Oklahoma and Texas look like they're heading to the sec. Uh, there's a story out recently that the Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC may form some sort of an alliance. Kirk, where is this all going? Because for years on this show, we've talked about eventually there will be super conferences and the haves and the have-nots, and it looks like we're headed in that direction. But where do you see this going?
3: Yeah, I guess we all have been speculating about that. When we, We saw the realignment stories years ago. I don't know. It feels like I'm with you. It feels like we're heading to maybe these four super conferences. Um, I just don't know what what's going to happen to the remaining teams in the Big Twelve. I mean, are they going to eventually have to join the Pac-12 or, or the or the Big Ten or the SEC? Are they are they going to add a few teams? Are they going to try to add, you know, like a I don't know, like a Houston or a BYU? I, I have no idea. You know, a lot of things are happening behind closed doors. We're all speculating. My biggest concern, to be honest with you, is I feel there's animosity right now between Greg Sankey of the SEC and all the other commissioners. Hmm. You hear about this alliance with the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12. And and to me, if we're ever going to be able to move move down the road in college football, we've got to be able to move together. Greg Sankey is worried, and he should be, about his own constituents in his backyard, his ADs, his presidents, his players, his coaches, his fans. And they're all excited about what Greg Sankey's doing. Kevin Warren's in the Big Ten. He's worried about his constituents. Same thing with the Big 12 and the Pac-12 and the ACC. Where's that one voice, like a Roger Goodell, whether you like him or you don't, where's the one voice that's worried about the sport collectively? That's, That's where we need to get. And right now, we don't. We're very fragmented. Everybody's looking out for their own interests. And I don't know where this thing ends up. I don't know if they're going to pull away from the NCAA, create their own governing body, their own set of rules or whatever they're going to do, or if they're going to stay in the NCAA. I I have no idea. But whatever happens, my hope is that in three years or five years that we get to a point where we have a better postseason to get more teams involved because right now Clemson, Ohio State, and Alabama are there every year. That's three of the four teams. we got to improve that. And we need one voice is not worried about his own backyard he's worried about the entire country and trying to do things right for the sport as a group and and right now we we don't have that so that's what i'm hoping we'll eventually get to how we get there I, i have no earthly idea
2: it's going to be interesting to watch last question uh espn's college game day kicks off on saturday august 28th i always marvel at like your schedule because you you know you're starting the day somewhere and then you don't always call the game in the location where you are. Are you like getting on the PJ and going to the game that you're calling or you know your day seems like it's crazy on Saturdays.
3: So real quick because I know we're tight on time. Yeah. 15 weeks let's say it's 15 weeks in a season. I would say seven or eight of the times I'm, I'm going to the game that I'm calling. So game day in the morning and stay in that same location we have a, a beautiful all-state bus in the back the park's right by the stadium and we have five tvs in the, in the back of that bus and we just sit there like fans do and and watch football all day you know and and uh and yell at each other and have fun i would say you know the other seven or eight i'm on the road you know and i i do game day in the morning let's say in tallahassee you know or are down in florida state and the game I'm calling could be in Austin, Texas. It could be in Eugene, wherever the ABC game of the week is. I fly, and Disney has a plane that they'll pick us up wherever game day is, and then they'll fly us to uh, to wherever that the game that I'm calling uh, happens to be. So by the time the show ends at noon Eastern, and we get down into a car, lease escort to an FBO, and we're in the air. I would say by twelve forty-five. I'm in the air, flying to my next location. Usually, we land, and we have a car that takes us sometimes straight to the stadium, depending on how far you go. Sometimes to a hotel for a quick shower, change of clothes, and then head over to the stadium. But uh, it's it's a full uh, full weekend without a doubt. But uh, man, it's something as you if you read the book, you know, I, it's something I love to do. It's my passion. Uh, I kind of stumbled into this job. I'm, am a bit of an anomaly. Usually you have to win a Heisman trophy to get in my seat or, you know, a national championship or be some kind of huge name on the playing field. I was not that. And, and I just tried to outwork everybody and grind and do the best I could, you know, all the way back in 1996 and had a lot of success and very fortunate. But I, I, Kind of like Tom Brady looks in the mirror and still sees a sixth round draft pick. Quarterback. <laughs> I'm not Tom Brady by any stretch of imagination, but I still see a guy trying to prove himself. And that, I just use that as my motivation to, uh, to do the best job that I can every year.
2: Kirk Herbstreet, watch him on ESPN College Game Day. Get his book. It is a fantastic read or listen. It's out of the pocket. Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays. It's at bookstores everywhere and Amazon.com. Kirk, I really enjoyed this conversation. Keep up the great work. I think your book is is fantastic. Uh, it's very relatable, and, and thanks for writing it.
3: Well, I've done a bunch of these to, to talk about the book and promote college football in the book, but uh, you did an incredible job. This is one of my favorites that I've done, and I really appreciate you having me on.
2: Thanks so much, Kirk. Best of success to you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy, the fastest-growing fantasy app ever released and the official gaming partner of Sports Business Radio. And with early investors like Mark Cuban, Kevin Durant, Adam Schefter, and Jared Goff, I know that Underdog Fantasy is made for people like me who are on the go and want something quick, easy, and fun to play. And today, we've got a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. If you sign up to Underdog Fantasy using the promo code SBR, they're going to double your first deposit up to $100. No risk, no long-term commitment, just sign up using promo code SBR and your first deposit is matched up to $100 for free. I already play Underdog Fantasy on the Underdog Fantasy app, but if I didn't, I'd use that free $100 and go for a pick'em contest where I can bet the over-under on individual players or team matchups or maybe the best ball mania three contest worth $10 million in total prizes. All you have to do is draft a team for the season. No waivers, no lineups, no injury reports. Underdog fantasy takes care of all of that for you. So do what I've been doing. Go to underdog fantasy, download the app, sign up with promo code SBR and get started right away with a free match on your first deposit up to a hundred dollars. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our team at Sports Business Radio, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, and our friends at CG Sports who power Sports Business Radio, CG Young, Matt Amerlin, Nicole Wardle, and Calvin Wirtz. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.